This is They Create Worlds, episode 144, Ascension into the Black Gate. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I am the Guardian, and I'm joined by my minion, the Historian. I don't think I ever agreed to actually be your minion. You just, um, is this okay? Of course it's okay. You see, I'm going to lure the Avatar into a dastardly trap and lock him away into my world of doom and despair, where he'll have to betray himself. And then I will take over Britannia, and then your pathetic Earth, in order to take over all creation. Wait, I'm, I'm confused. Is this about the plots of Ultima 7 and Ultima 8, or about Origin being devoured by electronic arts? Wait, there's something more evil than me? Let me go look at this. (laughs) Oh my goodness. They're more evil than me. I'm out of here. You you go handle this. I I don't care anymore. You can have your pathetic earth. EA, no. Bye. (laughs) So yes, as you uh, might have been able to tell from that rather dubious exchange, we are heading to our final episode, our third episode in our trilogy on trilogies in which we look at the dizzying highs of Ultima 7 all the way down to the terrifying lows of Ultima 9. Wait, Alex, you're already recording? Yes, Jeff. The episode has been going on for at least a couple of minutes. Who pressed the start button? I don't know. Some guy called the Guardian. Oh, well, probably not important. So, Ultima. Yes, Ultima. When we last left our heroes, just to kind of refresh, we had just finished what ended up being the second Ultima trilogy, so to speak, trilogy that encompassed Ultimas 4, 5, and 6. We also saw the Ultima series evolve significantly in that it was a PC-first game now, no longer Apple II. It was an primarily icon-driven interface rather than the old typey-typey everything. Most importantly, the games have become complex enough now and difficult enough to create that Richard Garriott is no longer being the primary driving force through the entire creative process. He still sets the tone. He still kind of gives the overarching plot, the overarching where he wants it to go. But we're in a period now in which other people then pick up on those cues and actually bring these products to fruition. We're still talking about an Ultima series that is highly successful with each installment doing to some degree better than the one before. Obviously, Ultima 4 is considered a true classic, but Ultima 5 and Ultima 6 are also highly regarded in their own way and continued the trend of the series doing quite well. Really, to start with, we're just talking about going from strength to strength and moving on to Ultima 7, The Black Gate, which is still regarded as one of the greatest computer RPGs ever made. Just a true highlight in computer game history. 
You're just sitting down at your computer and some red jerk shows up and takes over your computer as you're loading up Ultima 7 and starts taunting you. What's this world coming to? (laughs) Right. So in order to give a little bit of context to The Guardian that we have alluded to here, it's important to kind of see where Richard was and where he saw this series continuing to go. We've talked before how Ultima is a trilogy of trilogies, which does have some truth to it. Ultima 1, 2, and 3 are really not linked very much plot-wise at all, but the villains are linked. You defeat the evil wizard, then you defeat the evil wizard's wife, then you defeat the son of the other two evil wizards, who's also a computer, don't worry about it. So you have kind of this idea that one follows the other, but only very loosely. The second trilogy didn't really, I don't think, start as a trilogy either, but it morphed into that, and it became the trilogy of, let's look at something a little deeper and more philosophical. Let's think about what these games are saying. Let's think about how we are teaching players to act, and let's have a philosophical discussion through the medium of video games of what is a virtue, what is taking a virtue too far, what are heroes, what are villains, what is enlightenment something very metaphysical, still on top of an Ultima framework. Richard himself often likes to talk about these two trilogies as Ultima 1, 2, 3 being when Richard figures out how to make a good game from a programming perspective and game balance perspective, etc. Whereas Ultima's 4, 5, and 6 are where Richard learns how to tell a story. The final trilogy, Ultima 7, 8, and 9, were planned as a trilogy from the get-go. This time around, Richard knew he was going to do three games, all linked by the same overarching plot. He basically wanted to combine the main thrusts of his first two trilogies. The first trilogy was all about beating big bads. Now, these big bads were not greatly developed characters per se, but... From the beginning, it was kind of like, here is this evil thing. Go deal with that. Ultimas 4, 5, and 6 have all of the interesting stuff about virtue, good, and evil, but they don't have villains in that same sense. I mean, Ultima 4, really, it doesn't have a villain at all. It has a MacGuffin. You end the game by getting the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom, but as we talked about in the last episode... That's just there because you need some quest in an RPG where you can be like, you got this, you won game over. The real journey is the shrines you activate along the way. Ultima V has Lord Blackthorn as an antagonist, but he's not this big bad overarching evil because we're talking about how virtue can be corrupted in Ultima V. So Lord Blackthorn is someone who was genuinely well-meaning at the start, who became corrupted in trying to live up to the virtues of Lord British, and then as a result ended up corrupting Britannia in turn, and then you have to fix it. Ultima Six has a bad that is not an individual villain, but is a whole race of very scary gargoyles, until you realize that the metaphysical discussion we're having this time is on the nature of the consequences of actions and how 
when you think you're doing something very good, you may actually be doing something that for someone else is very bad. You learn over the course of the game that these bad villains are actually very sympathetic and very troubled people that you inadvertently caused a lot of destruction in their own world. There's a lot of interesting plot and there's a lot of interesting metaphysical discussion, but there isn't, here's a big villain like the Wizard Mondane or Mean X or Exodus. What he wanted to do for his, not just for Ultima 7, but for his next trilogy was have a villain at the center of it, the villain that would carry over between all of the games, while also still having some of those interesting discussions on what is virtue, what is goodness, what is evil, how does goodness become corrupted, how does evil come to power. So he knew he needed his next exodus. He needed a villain. But more importantly, he needed a villain that the Avatar was not just going to wallop at the end of Ultima 7, because even in those early Ultima games where there was a focus on a villain, it's basically like, yeah, once the Stranger, as he was called in the early games, or the Avatar, as he was called in the later games, gets strong enough, he is super powerful and can just eliminate the big bad and peace reigns. We've never had a villain that can stand up to the Avatar in all of his glory. This is Richard's conundrum as he starts thinking about Ultima 7. It just so happens just as Ultima 4 was largely defined by what he saw in other media. We talked about the documentary he saw and his understanding of what it meant in Hinduism and in in yoga to be virtuous and acquire virtue. We talked about that last episode. It just so happened that as he's thinking about all of these issues, one of the first in-depth journalistic profiles of the Church of Scientology is done. There was a suicide, and people were like, why did this guy commit suicide? And then there was investigation, and he was in Scientology, and oh, what's Scientology? And yeah. After this news investigation, the Church of Scientology itself stepped up its propaganda efforts and put out a pamphlet, like 40-some pages or something, describing the great L. Ron Hubbard and his wonderful Church of Scientology. For some reason or another, I don't know that Richard himself remembers how, this Scientology pamphlet came across Richard's desk, came to Richard's attention. So he read it, not because he had any interest in being involved in the Church of Scientology, but because this is interesting. He's like, huh, well, this is certainly a cult figure, L. Ron Hubbard, Church of Scientology. He was struck by how the pamphlet was trying to think of every way it possibly could to make L. Ron Hubbard seem both amazing and trustworthy. It talked about how he became an Eagle Scout at an incredibly young age. It's like, oh, Eagle Scout, they're known for being fine, upstanding citizens that help other people and benefit society. And then they talked about how he was a World War II veteran. It's like, oh, he served his country. He's an American hero that stood up to defend our values against the evils of Nazism. They talked about the fact that he was a ship captain, that he was a seaman, and that he captained ships. And it's like, oh, he's a captain. He's decisive. He can give orders, and he can steer the ship. He can guide the people to where they need to go. And Richard's thinking Scientology is a load of hooey, of course, but he's also thinking... This is interesting. This right here that I'm reading, this pamphlet, is how a cult does its darndest 
to convince people that they want to be part of the cult. That is what I need for my game. I need a overarching cult-like figure who is being portrayed as a new benevolent positive force that is here for the good of all, but that his followers will actually be brainwashing the people and turning them away from actual good values and weakening the social structure of Britannia in anticipation of a full takeover. It all starts with Scientology, Jeff, believe it or not. Wow. That's impressive. (laughs) That game is interesting in that if it wasn't for that intro scene that you have with the Guardian before the game starts. Yes. So you come into Britannia and some people of the Fellowship come up to you and go, Oh, Avatar, welcome. Have you heard about the Fellowship? (laughs) Start on from there. You get all of this fun introduction and don't mind that barn over there with the person skewered with a pitchfork. We don't talk about that. (laughs) That's right. Even the name, right? So the overarching evil that he comes up with is the guardian. Guardian is a positive word. A guardian is someone who protects. A guardian is someone who upholds. A guardian is someone who would never, ever hurt us. Unlike the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Exactly. It feels benevolent. The followers of the Guardian, the Fellowship, as you correctly pointed out, purport to be upholders of the virtues. Now, this game takes place canonically within the universe like a couple of hundred years after the last one. So the virtues are no longer practiced in the daily life of Britannia anymore. They've become something esoteric and scholarly. But the Fellowship proclaims itself to be virtuous. They proclaim themselves to be guardians of the virtue of Britannia. They proclaim themselves to be cut from the same cloth as the Avatar as an upholder of virtues. In fact, they even have their own addendum, just like we had Blackthorn in Ultima V who took the virtues and then kind of inverted them and perverted them. The Fellowship as well has their own new triad that they follow as their guiding principles. Even though there are eight virtues, there were kind of three core virtues, and then the rest of them radiated out from that. They have their triad of inner strength, which is a similar idea to this is the most virtuous stuff. It sounds very virtuous. The triad of inner strength is to strive for unity. Consensus is good. People like getting along. Strive for unity. Trust thy brother. Well, yes, it would be nice if nobody lied to each other and we could all trust each other. So it is a good thing to strive for to be able to trust everybody. Then the third leg is worthiness precedes reward. You know, the leftist socialist in you might already be looking a little askance at that, like, well, I mean, are we supporting all of society or just the people we like? And even still then, the basic core tenet of it is, well, okay, I mean, if you're going to be rewarded, a reward is a privilege. We don't want to give a reward to somebody who doesn't deserve it. We're not giving the last runner in the race the gold medal. We're giving the first runner in the race the gold medal. So fine, worthiness before reward. Okay, I can see that. I don't know that they sound completely innocuous on their surface, but they sound like you're trying to do something good. 
But then, of course, and this isn't deep philosophizing, I'm not claiming to provide a deep insight here, because, of course, obviously this is what the game wants you to think. It's not complicated. You turn those around. Strive for unity also means if you disagree with the consensus, you are a bad person, especially if you disagree with the will of the Guardian and his servant in Britannia, Batlin, who actually leads the fellowship. You are a bad person and must be punished. Trust thy brother means that if you suspect somebody is not trustworthy, if you suspect somebody is not striving for the unity brought by the Guardian, you need to report on that person so that they can be taken care of. Finally, you have worthiness precedes reward. If you are going to thrive in the new and beautiful world order created by the Guardian and his fellowship, You need to make darn sure that you are doing everything you can to be the very best fellowship person you can be. And if you are not following the tenets of the fellowship and carrying out the will of the fellowship to the best of your ability, you should feel like the horrible person you are, and you must be punished. There you have it, very similar in a way to the Blackthorn perversion of the virtues. You have this triad of inner strength that seems like, okay, those are lofty ideals, but then in practice it's more, it's founding a cult. It's saying that these are the supreme powers, you need to obey them. If your neighbors aren't obeying them, you need to report on them, and you need to be the best person for the Guardian that you possibly can be, or you're worthless. So pick up your pickforks. Pick up your axes and make sure that you get to work on that there portal. That's right, because, of course, at first you don't know what the ultimate goal is. And this is actually very interesting. And before we get into the plot, I should mention this. I talked about how Richard Garriott is not the primary person doing the grunt work of actually putting these games together anymore as he used to be. Ultima 6 was the same way, but they didn't have a real writer. They had people doing writing, but they weren't actual writers. They were programmers and designers that were kind of pulled in to doing the writing. For this project, they decided, because, again, this is a period of time when team sizes are expanding, when games are becoming more sophisticated, when you need more specialized roles, they decided that in this particular case, they would bring in an actual honest-to-God writer to be the head writer on the project. They ended up hiring an individual by the name of Raymond Benson. Benson got his start in the video game industry by actually writing some text adventures in the 1980s for Mindscape that were adaptations of other works. This was kind of the tail end of the whole bookware period that we talked about in our bookware episode where people thought, oh, text adventures are like interactive books, and this is going to be the new form of literature. So. We should do literature-style stuff, and we should adapt books into text adventures. So he did three adaptations. He did uh, an adaptation of Stephen King's The Mist, and then he did two Bond film adaptations, or two Bond novels and films. He was adapting the film specifically, uh, View to a Kill and Goldfinger. It turns out he was actually a good writer, and he was a huge James Bond fan. So this was kind of like a dream kind of job. And as a matter of fact... After his video game days here were done, Raymond Benson actually became the new official author of James Bond books because James Bond books continue to be made all the time, you know. 
long after Sir Ian Fleming is no longer with us. Raymond Benson was the official author of James Bond books from 1997 to 2003 and wrote 12 Bond novels in that period of time, including the novelizations of three of the uh, Pierce Brosnan movies. He actually became a very successful author, but at this time he was a text adventure guy that was a huge fan of James Bond. His work was good. I mean, his text adventures showed that he could write. He enjoyed doing the video game stuff, and then he actually answered an ad in the paper. Origin was looking for a writer, so they hired him. What Benson brought to this was both a more elevated language than any of the games had had before, better written dialogue than an Ultima game had ever had before, but he also brought the framework of the plot. He basically structured the plot of Ultima 7 just like a James Bond movie. That's in his own words. That's not me analyzing. He said he constructed this just like a James Bond movie. Now, obviously, you don't have Q handing out gadgets or the Avatar suddenly sleeping around with every woman they can find. Though I think you can do that in certain circumstances. (laughs) Right. Kind of the core elements of a James Bond story, according to Benson, and remember, he later became the official James Bond writer, so he knows what he's talking about, is that they always start with an initial catalyst, a big bang, a big shocking event that gets the story moving. What is the true origin and purpose of this fellowship thing? (laughs) Exactly. Then there's some kind of mystery that Bond has to solve. Then, as Bond continues to gather string and learn more about the mystery and has a series of encounters on his path towards the mystery, he discovers that what he thought was the sort of evil plot is really just touching the surface, really just scratching the surface of what the actual big evil thing going on is. We're not just perverting the virtues and trying to take over the world and say, everyone's a part of the fellowship of this mystical guardian thing. No, we're going to be putting together a black gate in order to bring the guardian here to Britannia because he can't come here on his own. He has to be summoned by outside forces. And when he arrives, by the way, he's going to destroy Britannia. Well, I mean, that's a given. Look at Pagan. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll get there. So... That's exactly how Benson structured the story, is catalyst, mystery, dig below the surface, stop the ultimate big bad thing from occurring. With the added flip that because this was going to be a trilogy, Richard had planned for the entire time to structure it very similar to something like Star Wars, where first episode, you are successful against something but then it leads into a second episode that's very dark and feels like you're on the edge of hope before third episode is redemption. They knew that they were going to have it not really end and that there was going to be a darker chapter on the way to follow it. They weren't into the specifics of what Ultimate was going to be yet, but they knew that much. That's Ultima 7. I mean, that's the plot of Ultima 7. What he did then is Benson was the overall story writer. But then he had four other writers reporting to him. These writers were each given responsibility for developing a portion of the world and a portion of the plot. So basically, he said, this is what's going on. These are the bad guys. This is the overall mystery. Now, we need 
breadcrumbs to get from point A to point E, way over here, E being the end game. Each of you develop your own region, create your own sub-mysteries and things that need to be discovered and things that need to be solved so that we can get from point A to point E. What this did is it made sure that each area of the game felt fresh and different from every other area of the game because each one was conceived as a complete whole by a single person. And then it was Benson's job to take all of these individual parts of it, polish them up, and tie them together and create the overarching narrative, which ended up being a very effective way to create the story. At this point, did they know the full, true nature of the Guardian, or was he just more of a generic bad guy at this point? That's a great question, Jeffrey, and the, and the answer is no. We'll see this when we get to Ultima 9. Everything about Ultima 9, in terms of the story, was created for Ultima 9 specifically when they were working on that game, and because that game was in development hell for so long, it actually changed significantly over time. The true nature of the Guardian, which, you know, spoiler alerts for ancient games, turns out that the Avatar and the Guardian are the good and the evil half of the same soul, and that the Avatar has to sacrifice themselves and basically recombine with the Guardian to ascend and save the world. None of that was understood by anybody at the time of Ultima 7. We know for a fact, because the person who wrote the original script for Ultima 9 has been interviewed, we know for a fact that that material was not created until Ultima 9. Which is a shame, because I thought it would be a wonderful way to tie all the way back to the original two trilogies when I realized that was the game. The fact that you're the stranger, you're doing all of this murdering and killing and Uh all this other stuff, very Guardian-esque. Yeah, yeah. You're doing all of that in order to win and ultimately win. I'm still being good. Then you go on the purification quest of the Avatar. By becoming the Avatar, when you ascend in the abyss and you become all of that craziness that happens, that's when you split. The evil side of you, of the stranger, goes off to Pagan and does whatever the heck he does there to make that place a wonderful place to be. And then you are in Britannia, and you're elevating up Britannia, building it up, making it wonderful, and you're just all good, and you can't do anything (laughs) evil because your evil self is not there. That's a great idea, Jeffrey. Unfortunately, it was not the idea they came up with. Darn. Obviously, the stuff about the Avatar being good and only being able to do good, that is something they retroactively came up with when they came up with the idea that the Avatar was the good part of the soul, the Guardian, the bad part. But no, they weren't thinking in terms of using the Guardian as a gimmick to tie the whole series together, at least not at the stage of Ultima 7. At the stage of Ultima 7, we were just talking about Richard once an overarching villain. Richard finds the way Scientology was built up as a cult fascinating. We are going to have a Scientology-esque cult that worships this malevolent being from another world that wants to come in and destroy our world. That's all we have at the time of Ultima 7. Written by your local friendly James Bond. (laughs) Exactly. So that's kind of the story side of things. From a technology point of view, they were able to do some really quite fascinating things. The game was still tile-based as all the Ultimas have been, going way back to Ultima 1. But for the first time, they were able to create a system of layering graphical objects on tiles. They did not have a layering system before. 
This was the first game in the series done using something akin to isometric projection. Now, technically speaking, from a mathematical point of view, it was not pure isometric, but it was still skewed in that isometric kind of way to give it a 3D effect, as opposed to all of the Ultima games 1 through 6 that were purely top-down. They came up with a system of layering tile objects on top of each other. So you could have a bit of grass, and then you could have a bench on that bit of grass, and then you could have a trellis over top of that bench on the grass and create way more complex graphical elements than previous Ultima games had. This also meant that they had the opportunity to create even more interaction with the environment. Now, we may remember from last episode that Ultima 6, one of the real goals of Ultima 6 was interact with everything. If there's an object in the game, you should be able to make use of it in a believable manner. If there's a torch on the wall, you should be able to remove that torch from the wall and use it for light. If there is an oven, you should be able to bake bread in it. We also already had the concept of character routines that was developed throughout Ultima 5 and 6. Characters don't just wander around in one set spot. They follow a pattern. They get up in the morning, they go to work, they go to the pub after work, they go home, they go to bed. Ultima 7 also takes that NPC pathing to a whole new level. Give the NPCs very detailed routines, and made it so that sometimes, instead of just talking to NPCs, which in past Ultima games had been the primary way that you would gain new information, sometimes it became important to see what NPCs were doing instead, to follow NPCs and see where they were going, what they were interacting with. It would also sometimes be necessary to break into their houses and actually find objects like letters or like a bloody dagger which provided further evidence as to motivation. Sometimes it maybe even made sense to kill a person if you thought you could get away with it and actually take an item off of their body that would reveal something about the plot. Though you did have to be careful about killing people because let's just say the Guardian was a constant mocking presence and he got very upset with you when you started killing people. I need those for summoning. <laughs> In this sense, it was opening up the interaction even more. This was a true open-world game. We don't use that term lightly. It's a game where you're dropped in a specific spot in Britannia and you're given this initial murder that you're supposed to investigate. But at that point, even though the game, as all Ultima games, will give you breadcrumbs about where to find new stuff, you can take off for any part of the world at this point. You can interact with anybody. You can just go start baking that bread and ignore everything else. It is a true open world that is on its own schedule, and you just immerse yourself in that open world. Todd Howard, who is the main producer on the Elder Scrolls series, he has gone on the record saying basically Oblivion, and, you know, by extension then the next one, Skyrim. Yeah, Oblivion is basically me being like, Ultima 7's cool, let's do that. What the Elder Scrolls series does today in 3D, that is what Ultima 7 was doing in isometric 2D tile-based back in 1992. Just think about how old that game is. We are in 2021, kids. That is nearly 30 years ago. Yep. It was huge. It had the largest world by far. The world was made up of tens of thousands of tiles. 
because they came up with a very clever system. We've talked before about how, you know, there are two ways you can do graphics. I mean, there are many ways you can do graphics. There are two kind of primary ways you can do graphics. You can create a bunch of graphics and store all of these graphics on a disk, on a hard drive or whatever, and take up all of this memory. Or you can include instructions for how to place graphical elements, then have the game generate those elements based on those instructions as you're playing the game. Pictures, expensive. Instructions, cheap in terms of memory. We talked about this in terms of Sierra Adventure games, the way that Mystery House and Wizard and the Princess, the early Sierra games, were able to get full-screen graphics onto an Apple II in a time when disk space was pathetic, is they didn't store those pictures. They stored the commands to draw those pictures. Then the game drew the pictures. And that's what they did with Ultima 7. So obviously, there are graphical elements in Ultima 7. There's all the tiles, and there's all the stuff you can put on top of tiles. But they just stored all of these elements individually in the files. Then when it came to actually building the world, they didn't store the map of the world as a ginormous image. Instead, they said, okay, this tile is constructed of this element followed by this element followed by this element, and this tile next to it is constructed by this element on top of this element, and then this one over here, and so on and so forth. So they were able to create a humongous world. Ultima worlds were always known for being big, but this world was truly almost too big to fathom. But it was not procedurally generated. Oftentimes, there's a push and pull between, okay, you can have a super detailed, unique world, or you can have a large world that goes on forever, but you can't have both. Because if you're doing the super detailed world, you're authoring every individual element, you have to place everything just so, and it's memory intensive. Or you can do procedural generation, like in Elite, which we've talked about, or like in Daggerfall, say, the second Elder Scrolls game, which means that you can have a world that goes on forever, but you're just going to see the same elements repeating over and over again. There's very little curation to make anything unique. In Ultima, they were able to have a huge world that was also curated because they could do it using these commands to place objects. So the world of Ultima, when I said it's tens of thousands of tiles, I'm not exaggerating. So what they did is they divided the map into chunks. They had 16 by 16 pixel chunks of map that were then grouped into 12 by 12 grids of pixels that they called super chunks. This created a grid of 192 by 192 pixels that itself was a subset of a 16 by 16 grid. They layered these grids on top of each other this way. So the final world is 24,576 by 24,576 pixels. That's not tiles, that's pixels. But still, that's the world size. Rather large. If it had been rendered as an image, an uncompressed image, instead of as a series of commands, it would have been a 576 megabyte raw image. That's the world. That's pretty huge. Especially back in 92 when we just have this barely operating CD thing, and where's the space for the rest of the game? <laughs> exactly. Well, and remember, in, in 1992, hard drives were still a relatively new thing for consumer PCs to have. True. 
you know, your hard drive wasn't probably going to be more than 540 megabytes. Yes, they got a lot of information to create a big world by using this technology. And as we said, it's a world where every NPC had his own routine. There was, you know, always stuff to discover and find that was unique. One thing that did suffer from all of this was the combat. In making a game this big and this complex, they were focusing on story, they were focusing on world building, they were focusing on solving mysteries, they were focusing on character movement. So the combat is really simple compared to previous games. The combat never does recover in Ultima, quite frankly. I mean, I don't think anyone ever played an Ultima game with combat as their first love. It's always been more about exploring the world, discovering the secrets, etc. But this is kind of the beginning of the end of combat being in any way interesting in an Ultima game. More or less push in a direction and, oh, look, you hit something. <laughs> right. The world is expansive and beautiful. There's tons to see and do. You can bake your bread. You can make your own weapons and armor. You can fully interact with this world. It's the natural conclusion of what Richard really started building towards with Ultima 5 and 6 in terms of the gameplay systems. Then on top of that, it has a fantastic plot with an interesting villain that for once is not going to be foiled entirely at the end of this episode because you do confront Batlin, you do figure out the Fellowship is evil, and you do prevent the Black Gate from being built and the Guardian entering the world, but then it ends on a cliffhanger because you are sucked into the Guardian's own world, and uh-oh, this could be bad. Well, that's where we get Serpent Isle which is the expansion of Ultima 7. Well, it, it's not actually an expansion. Uh, this is a little complicated. So Ultima 7's huge. Ultima 7 takes four years to make. They started working on it in like 1988. It takes four years to make. Origin has always been the Ultima company. Obviously, starting in 1990, it becomes the Ultima and Wing Commander company. It's always been the Ultima company. They release other games but those other games never perform as well or never as memorable as a Richard Garriott Ultima game. Origin is a company that requires Richard Garriott Ultima games in order to keep being a company. You cannot do that if you're only going to get a new Ultima game every four or five years. There will be no company. That's why in this period of time they started experimenting, how can we do Ultima that isn't Ultima? First, they tried the Worlds of Ultima series, where they basically took the Ultima engine, but applied it to completely different scenarios that really had nothing to do with Ultima. They would occasionally make reference to the Avatar as if this was all part of some large multiverse of Ultima stuff. They tried doing the Worlds of Ultima games as a way of tiding over between Richard Garriott releases. They did... Two of those. The Savage Empire. The first one, and the other one was Martian Dreams. They had the Ultima name big on the box. The first one had the subheading Worlds of Ultima. The second one had the subheading Worlds of Adventure. Then they had the name, you know, Savage Empire Martian Dreams. These were not Ultima games. They were not created by Richard Garriott. They sort of starred the Avatar, kind of, because they're trying to tie these together, but not really. It was an attempt to try to keep Ultima games coming when an Ultima game wasn't coming. So that was a disaster. They just didn't sell very well. Of course, Ultima Underworld comes out in this time period. That was the same principle at play there. Now, you know, we talked about Ultima Underworld, our influential games and whatnot. It started as a game called Underworld. 
then when Origin got a hold of it, they're like, this is a cool game. We should put the Ultima name on it. So then it became Ultima Underworld. It was not conceived from the beginning as an Ultima game. But it was the same instinct of, we need Ultima games that aren't Richard Garriott Ultima games, or the company's going to go bankrupt. Ultima 7 Serpent's Isle, which we're really not going to go into detail here, was created because they were trying to get another Ultima game out while waiting for the next real Ultima game. You know, one of the hallmarks of Ultima has always been that Richard starts over from scratch with a new engine. That's one of the reasons Ultima games take so long to make. So they're like, we've got this Ultima 7 engine. Let's use it again. Let's create another Ultima game using this engine. If I recall correctly, they made like three expansions. So you had the Forge of Virtue, Serpent Isle Part 1 and Part 2, and they all do tie into the overall plot that sets up Ultima 8. That's true. They do tie in. They do continue the story that was started in Ultima 7, but they were not created by the core Ultima team, and they were not necessarily part of the core Ultima vision when Ultima 7 was conceived. Just to back up a little bit, when I said that at the end of Ultima 7, you get whisked off to the world of the Guardian, I was actually getting a little ahead of myself there. I should say that at the end of that, when you are whisked off to uh, another part of the world that Britannia is in, and the story continues there, and then at the end of Serpent Isle, you are sent to the Guardian's world. But That, as far as I know, was an unplanned extension of the story. So they put off your arrival in this new world so that they could do these other Ultima games that allowed them to get something out sooner to keep the series going in the absence of the next big product. Which is why we're basically going to say, yes, this exists, and mostly leave it at that. Now, of course, comes the truly troubled development of Ultima 8. There's a story that's grown up around Ultima 8, and the story goes like this. Poor, innocent, creative Richard Garriott was working on his next Ultima game. And then the evil, evil people, known as Electronic Arts, came along and bought his company out from under him, and then demanded that he release his game right away to meet quarterly targets. Christmas. You gotta make those Christmas targets. Thus was what would have no doubt been the next brilliant game in the Ultima series ruined by the meddling of Electronic Arts. That story is almost entirely false. Richard even says so. In one of the show notes I had in a previous episode called The Museum of the Avatar, and I'll throw it again in this show note, he talks his way through the entire series. Origin was bought out by EA during the production of Ultima 7. Ultima 8 is under the EA brand, under the EA management structure. And then you have Mm -hmm. smart people that came to Richard and said, if you look at this from the mathematical standpoint here, if we sell things around the holiday season, release there, we tend to reap in more money. That's better for you. That's better for us. Here's some other stuff. So if you can try and get the games out around those time periods, that'd be really great. Richard thinks like, well, these people are smart. These people are great. They know what they're doing. Sure, I can cut a few things. There's only so much you can cut from a game when you develop the engine from yourself. I can't cut half the engine out. I'm not going to have a playable game. I can only really start cutting content. A lot of the big, big driver of Ultima games is content. Mm -hmm. 
say for Ultima 8, the reason a lot of people didn't like it is because the content's not there. There's a lot of gray. So much gray. All the gray. Yes. You're not even sure if this gray is a beach, a dungeon, a castle, a building. We don't know what gray this is. There's nothing to differentiate it. There's nothing to really help there. And it's just because a lot of that content, a lot of that assets, a lot of the fact-checking, to be honest, was missing. Right. So that gets us to kind of the first layer of penetrating through the fake story that's grown up around Ultima 8. But that's a good place to start. Really, what you might call the Richard's revisionist take on Ultima 8 is also just scratching the surface of what was actually going wrong with this game at this period of time. We really have to go back and examine a lot of what was going on in the industry in general and with Origin in particular in this period of time. Remember how I said that Origin was the Ultima company, but then from 1990 it was the Ultima and Wing Commander company. In point of fact, Origin was fast becoming the Wing Commander company. What I mean by that is Ultima had its adherents, Ultima had its fans, Ultima was still selling very well. But Wing Commander was the new hotness. Wing Commander was the darling of the industry. Wing Commander, with its real-time, fast-paced, high-flying action and melodramatic plot, was the new hotness of Origin. Ultima was being kind of shunted aside. I don't think this sat very well with Richard. You don't want to armchair psychologize a person too much, but I've talked to plenty of people who interacted with Richard, and other authors and historians have talked to plenty of people that have interacted with Richard. He could be prickly and stubborn and even a little bit arrogant. Now, He was never a dictator or a slave driver. He was never a Richard Say You Do Restaurant Column kind of guy. I mean, he was very collaborative in creating the Ultima games. He was open to other people's ideas. By the time of Ultima 6 and Ultima 7, he had even turned over most of the nuts and bolts of creating the games to trusted subordinates. I'm not trying to paint him out as a cruel and heartless taskmaster like the Guardian. But the evidence seems to indicate that it did not sit very well with Richard, that Origin was no longer the Ultima company. It was the Ultima and Wing Commander company. And to put more of a fine point on it, it was the Wing Commander and Ultima company. Richard gave a lot of thought to how he could grow the audience for Ultima. And he said this himself. He said this himself in interviews at the time. Whether this was driven by his being nonplussed that Wing Commander was stealing the limelight, that's me speculating a little bit. But the fact that he was trying to think about how to broaden the Ultima user base, that is not speculation. He actually said that in interviews during the time of the creation of Ultima 8. He kind of came to a conclusion or a realization that the games were really getting too big and too complicated. This is before we get to anything about Budgets and schedules and deadlines, disk space, or anything else. This is on a purely philosophical level. He is thinking to himself that the games have gotten too unwieldy, too inaccessible to new players. 
unable to grab that same demographic that devoured Wing Commander and devoured Wolfenstein and eventually devoured Doom. Almost in a way going down the same path of Wizardry and the continuing story there where you have to have played the previous game in order to even have an idea of what the heck you're doing. Right. At this early stage, as early as 1993, Richard has come to the conclusion, we've got to shrink the scope. So Richard makes the decision all by himself, presumably in collaboration with others. But what I mean is without pressure from Electronic Arts. Richard makes the decision, we are no longer going to have a party of players. We are going to have just the Avatar. You are controlling just the Avatar in this world. He came to the conclusion himself that the world would be smaller. We're not going to keep upping the ante on world size that saw Ultima 7 become incredibly, almost mind-bogglingly huge. We are going to make the world smaller, more intimate. Instead of the main thrust being that you get to explore a lot of places in the hopes that one or two of those places will have something important, which has really been the hallmark of Ultima all the way back to the first game. We talked especially how this was true in Ultima 1, 2, and 3, where a lot of the world was empty, but you kept exploring because you were looking for that one space that was not empty, and that was the drive, that was the draw, that was the appeal. Now he's deciding that is not going to bring in new players in this new age of computer gaming when things are changing so much. Real-time gameplay action gameplay, full motion video. This is a drastically changing time in computer game history, 1992 to 1994. This is right there at that doom divide that is changing PC gaming forever. I've said it before, and I think you can say it without exaggeration. You can organize computer game history into before doom and after doom. It changes so much. Ultima 8 is being conceived right in the middle of this massive change in the entire industry. So he decides we're going to scale it back. One character to control. Smaller, denser world. More action elements. So he looks around at some of the smaller, denser games that he has enjoyed that have also been popular. There are two that really stand out to him. One of these is The Secret of Monkey Island 2 the point-and-click adventure game from Lucasfilm Games, LucasArts. He really enjoyed that game. He enjoyed the cleverness of the puzzles. One decision that he made for Ultima 8, and again, this was his decision, no pressure, was that there would be a greater emphasis on puzzle solving. There would be a greater density of content per screen. Fewer screens, more things to do on each screen. A lot of that came from Secret of Monkey Island 2. The other game that he had played recently and really enjoyed was Prince of Persia. We've, of course, talked about Prince of Persia before as well. It's a cinematic action platformer. It's a platforming game. You are having to jump around, but it's a game that is defined more by its fluid animations, its puzzle solving, and its kind of overall cinematic quality more than just being jump from point A to point B to point C to point D. So he, again, made the decision, this came from no pressure anywhere else, that he should put an action element in it to make it more appealing, and that he would base that action element on what he liked about Prince of Persia, which meant 
platforming. Kids, platforming on an isometric map is difficult in the best of circumstances. Ultima 8 takes platforming and goes, you know, unless you click the right pixel, and I do mean pixel, you're dead. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. A lot of this came down to these were a bunch of PC people that were attempting to do a console-style action gameplay on the PC. This is a problem that you'll often see. If you're really good at making a certain kind of game, and you've spent all your time making that kind of game, and you're a really good game designer, and you can make a really good game of that type, then you go over here, and you try to make a game with different mechanics than the ones you usually work with. Even if you're a brilliant game designer, it is so hard to make that transition because you really don't understand what you're doing. We've seen so many people fall down doing this with platform games. I'm thinking of Warren Spector, who, of course, has been in our Ultima story as the producer of Ultima 6, who was well-regarded for the games that he either made personally or produced that other people made, like Ultima 6, like Wing Commander, like Ultima Underworld, like Deus Ex. But then he went and made a platformer on the Wii, Epic Mickey, and it was terrible. In their case, it wasn't so much that they didn't understand how to do the jumping, it's that they didn't understand how to do the camera, because this is a 3D platform game. Tim Schafer, beloved adventure game designer of products such as The Secret of Monkey Island 2 that we just talked about. Obviously, Ron Gilbert was the lead designer, but he was also a designer on it. Co-lead designer on Day of the Tentacle, creator of Grim Fandango, one of the greatest adventure game designers in history. He made a game called Psychonauts that is beloved for its characters, its humor, its world-building, its imagination. But as a platformer specifically, in terms of the platform mechanics, they are not very good because Tim Schafer doesn't know how to make platform games. Ultima 8 suffered from having a lead designer that was a new designer. This guy's name was Mike McShaffrey. Because remember, at this point, Garriott is defining overarching things. Then other people implement the vision. Mike McShaffrey was an Ultima fan that ended up getting hired by Origin. He was competent. I mean, he had, you know, the right degrees and everything. It's just he had loved their games, and then when he was ready to start a career, he ended up working there. He cut his teeth on the Worlds of Ultima spinoffs that we talked about, and then he became the project leader on Ultima 8. He had never been a project leader before. He was not a player of platform games. Under his direction, the team came up with a jumping system that just didn't work, and he said in retrospective interviews, he's been brave enough to to give interviews about this, to his credit. He said, the testers were telling us this was a problem, because, as he put it, the testers were people that did play Mario games, Sonic games, console games. The testers knew a bad jumping system when they saw one. Oftentimes when you're designing something, not even designing, if you're writing something, if you're creating a movie or a television show, oftentimes when you're in the thick of doing something, you don't see the problem. It becomes normal to you. You come up with this, you come up with that, and the more you're surrounded by it, the more you're immersed in it, the more you come to believe that you're doing it the right way. You know, it's just a psychological thing. So the testers were coming back to him and saying, 
this jumping system is terrible. You have to fix this. He said, no, it's fine. It would be very tempting to say, well, clearly the jumping system is bad because the game was rushed out the door. They didn't have time to fine tune it. And if they had had six more months, the jumping would have been much better. No, honestly, no. The jumping was actually as intended. That was not a cut made to get it out. Now, some people that are a little more knowledgeable about Ultima 8 may be saying, but wait, Alex, they released a patch after the game came out, and the patch made the jumping much better. So clearly, that must have been something they realized was a problem. Well, no, because again, this guy has given interviews. After the game was released and everybody hated the jumping, he did on his own time, because Origin and Electronic Arts were ready to forget about this and move on. On his own time, he created a patch where he implemented a better jumping system. But that was in response to the user feedback after the game was released. It wasn't because they knew it was bad all along, and they just had to ship it. The gameplay sins of Pagan were the creations of Richard and his design team. They were not the creations of a rushed schedule. Now we have to get to the other part of the equation on this, which is the technology side. The problem with Ultima 8 technologically, the problems that you mentioned about how everything was gray and blah and seemingly underdeveloped, some of that did have to do with release schedules. I mean, they did start cutting stuff because they needed to get the game out the door. Some of that was because the game came at a very, very messy time in the transition to new video game technology. I am now referring to the transition from floppy disk to CD-ROM. The team, for whatever reason, decided that this game needed to continue pushing boundaries graphically. I mean, all the Ultima games, to one degree or another, have done that. But I think that there was probably an added fear as Wing Commander was pushing the bounds of technology that Ultima needed to really push the bounds of technology to keep up. So the Ultima 8 engine, which of course was a new engine, because they're always new engines, even though it was still a 2D isometric perspective, and a real isometric perspective at this point, because as we said before, Ultima 7, while it was kind of isometric looking, was actually not a true isometric projection. Ultima 8 was. Even though it still had that 2D perspective, they created it using 3D graphical elements using polygons. They actually created the graphics within 3D Studio, which was brand new at the time. That's great for making everything looking nice, shiny, and happy. That's bad for storage capacity on floppy disks. The hope was that this was going to be the first Ultima game released natively on CD. That's the only reason you would start doing elaborate 3D graphics in a 2D world, is if you think you're going to be putting this game on a storage medium that can take all of that extra graphical data. The problem is, in the time period in this game is being made, 1993 is the year that CD finally starts to take off. Mist is the killer app. We've talked about that before. Seventh Guest also came out, which was a secondary killer app. So at the time Pagan is being made, there is not enough 
of a CD-ROM install base to justify putting out a game like Ultima 8, which had a huge development team and a huge budget, out only on CD-ROM. They would not recoup their costs. So a decision was made that there would be a floppy disk release. Well, shoot. They're doing all of these graphics and animations in 3D Studio. They're doing true isometric projection with 3D assets in a 2D space. Now we're being told that this all has to be able to fit on a handful of 1.44 megabyte floppy disks. Yeah, that's not happening. Right. So did they cut material to hit their release schedule? Yes, they did. Even before that, were they already frantically cutting material because it wouldn't fit on floppy disk? You better believe they were. It was an unfinished mess. There's no other way to discuss it. The jumping was broken. The world, because they had to cut so many art and animation assets, was bland. The plot was barely coherent. There were whole chunks of the game that just had to be removed. It's terrible. There are some Ultima fans today that try to say, yeah, I mean, obviously, all of that wasn't great, but it wasn't really that bad. It's like, no, no, it was that bad. Worse, because Richard had come up with the story structure of this being the Dark Act, his story idea for this one, which in a vacuum sounds like an okay story idea, was this game will be all about how do you keep true to yourself and your ideals? when you are thrown into a world of pure evil, where in order to survive in this world of pure evil, you basically have to embrace the evil. That's an interesting philosophical concept. How do you stay true to yourself in the light in a realm of darkness? That's great. But the problem is, his manner of doing this was to isolate the Avatar alone in a completely foreign and alien world. If a game with some of these broken elements and these poor art assets and whatever else had taken place in Britannia and you're surrounded by Iolo and Hawkwind and Shimino and all of these characters you've come to know and love, you at least might be able to say to yourself, okay, this isn't the greatest rendition of Britannia, but yay, I'm back in Britannia again. Hooray! I'm excited. But no. This game takes place in the world of Pagan, which is where the title comes from. It doesn't mean Pagan in the sense of the dictionary definition of the word. We know now, as we know, that Richard Garrett just takes words he thinks are cool and puts them in. Exodus has nothing to do with Exodus. Pagan has nothing to do with paganism. It's the name of the world that the Guardian inhabits, a world that has been corrupted into a world of essentially pure evil. You didn't even have Britannia to fall back on. You didn't have familiar tropes, characters, settings to fall back on. You just had this ugly jumping game in this strange, nonsensical world. It's dark, and it's ugly, and ugh, right? It's difficult. It's hard. You don't know who the characters are. You start to learn a little bit about them, but yeah, it's not a very enjoyable experience playing it. And you're just like, yeah, I'll just shut this down and fire up. Another game. And then, of course, it ends on the darkest of darkest of cliffhangers, one that, spoiler alert, is basically ignored by the next game. Let's be honest. All of the endings and beginnings are ignored by the other games. (laughs) Yes, but in this case, they were supposed to be a connected trilogy. Nah. When it ends, you finally struggle your way out of Pagan. You open a gate back to Britannia, and all you see before you is lava and devastation. 
it ends with giving you the impression that, ha ha, you're too late. The Guardian has already won. And scene. So we'll just start off Ultima 9 with you waking up in your bed on Earth. <laughs> of course. And you go to Britannia, and obviously Britannia is in mortal danger, but it's not destroyed. It's not all lava. Well, it completely ignores the previous one, like you said, because you were in Britannia and looking at that. So what? You're like, you saw everything in lava, and you're like, okay, this didn't happen. Snap your fingers. Okay, I'm back at home. We're going to start this like a proper Ultima game. Home, summoning, Britannia, save world. Exactly. So that is the sad saga of Ultima 8. It was a disaster. This is a good time at the end of the Ultima 8 saga, the beginning of the Ultima 9 saga, to address the elephant in the room, which is Electronic Arts. I mean, they scared the Guardian away. Right. Origin and Electronic Arts had a history. We discussed this history in our Origin episode. Basically, Origin became one of the early affiliated labels of Electronic Arts. Affiliated labels, as we discussed in our EA episodes, being developers that were not owned by EA that would publish their own games, but EA would do the distribution. They got into some kerfluffles where EA basically started strong-arming them and trying to do some somewhat shady things, which we have other episodes to talk about it. This is not an Origin History episode. Suffice it to say that Origin ended up getting out of its affiliated label contract with the help of Broderbund, and then distributed with Broderbund for a few years. Richard truly, truly hated Electronic Arts after that. You may recall, if you have played Ultima 7, that you have the Guardian. You have the Guardian's Fellowship, and the head of the Fellowship is Batlin. Batlin has two subordinates of his own, named Elizabeth and Abraham. What are the initials of Elizabeth and Abraham, these characters that seem benevolent at first, but as you get to know them, end up being really dark, unpleasant people? Oh, I don't know. E.A.? That ain't an accident, folks. There was also a character, Pert Snickered or something like that, which was Trip Hawkins spelled backwards. Pert Snicka, I guess it would be. Yes, in one of the games that was Trip Hawkins spelled backwards, there was another unpleasant fellow. Richard hated EA because of how they retreated. He had some justification. EA was not doing anything illegal to them, but EA was really strong-arming them. Well, you fast forward to 1992, and again, we won't go into super detail because we have an episode that covers this, but Trip Hawkins is no longer there. Larry Probst is the CEO. Origin is being killed by its own success because they've always been a small company. They've never had a lot of resources. They've never been able to pay their developers well. They've had to force their developers to work long hours to get games out because they have small team sizes. So they have a lot of churn and a lot of turnover of veteran talent. Wing Commander actually nearly kills them with its success because floppy disks are expensive. Wing Commander's on a lot of floppies. The more copies Wing Commander sells, the more floppies they have to buy. And it's this virtuous cycle that is just devastating on the bottom line because they don't have a broad catalog that allows them to spread those costs more evenly around multiple products. It's a company that has never had a hit outside of Ultima and Wing Commander of any real size, which means that they're always waiting with bated breath for the next game from one of these star creators and just trying to keep the lights on in between. They are battered, bruised, exhausted. EA is interested in them because EA is expanding and Origin does game types that EA is not good at. There's Synergy. 
Richard and Robert are basically like, okay, Trip's not there anymore. Trip's the one we really had issue with. Let's do it. So they get bought out by Electronic Arts. The story of Origin and Electronic Arts is not a story of Electronic Arts micromanaging Origin into death and killing their culture, causing everyone to be unhappy and leave, and ruining the company, which is the standard narrative people like to tell. The story of Electronic Arts and Origin is Electronic Arts is thrilled to have this company. They immediately give everyone pay raises, give management stock options. Everyone has more money than they've ever had before. They immediately and excitedly invest in the studio, hiring more talent, putting more people on projects, giving more money to develop more cutting-edge technology. They do suggest things like, wouldn't it be great if you could get a game out by Christmas? But they never say, you must get a game out by Christmas. Huge difference. And in fact, we have to remember that they actually agreed to a delay to Ultima 7, which actually came out later than it was supposed to. Despite all of this, get Pagan out by Christmas, get Pagan out by Christmas, they agreed to a three-month delay on Pagan, which was not released until March 1994. Clearly, EA, even if they were going to grumble about quarterly targets, was not demanding that the game come out at Christmas. They weren't laying down an edict. Exactly. This isn't a Knights of the Old Republic 2 situation, where LucasArts basically said to Obsidian, no, you are releasing this now. The Origin people felt that they were getting all of this money and all of this attention and all of this faith, and they felt almost obligated to try to live up to that. It was kind of a situation where they ended up being guilted into following a strict timeline, I think. And Richard kind of admits this. He felt an obligation because of everything that EA was doing for them more than there was an actual command. Now, I do think, however, that when you get to talking about Ultima 9, Richard gets a bit disingenuous in his explanations about what happened with that one. Ultima 9, as we know, his capstone, his end to his trilogy of trilogies, is a disaster pretty much on the same level as Pagan, and in some ways more of a disaster, because at least you could kind of sort of get to the end of Pagan when it was released. The way Richard tells the story is that EA was like, okay, yeah, Ultima 8 wasn't that great, but yay, Ultima's still great, so let's move on, let's do Ultima 9, but we're going to kind of not give you a lot of resources to do it because we think that you've been doing too many big games and it would be better if Origin did a lot of really small games. So yeah, go ahead, do Ultima 9, great, but we're going to make it a small game. Then Richard gets the idea to do Ultima Online. And at first they're like, no, we don't want to do Ultima Online, blah, 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 online games, nobody cares. Then they reverse course and are like, yes, We'd love Ultima Online. Now everyone must work on Ultima Online. Ultima 9, who cares? We're done. Never again. Ultima 9, nah. Then Richard is like, okay, but this is my baby, so please, please, if we do the Ultima Online thing, can I finish my baby? EA's like, yeah, sure, whatever, fine, finish your dinky little game. Well, I guess put it out, whatever. Richard tells a story about the company forcing him to cut, forcing him to think small, and then changing its mind on him multiple times. And then Richard gets fed up and leaves and new managers are brought in from another part of the company and they don't understand anything. They should have started over, but they didn't because they were stupid and so they were left with this half-finished product that they had to release and it's a disaster. The end. 
That's a version of the story that's pretty damning to electronic arts. I would also argue it's potentially damning to Richard Garriott as well. To a degree, but especially damning to electronic arts. It also doesn't seem to be the real story. To understand the real story, you have to understand what was going on with Origin and what was going on with Electronic Arts. When Electronic Arts invested all of that money into Origin, Origin turned around and said, we are going to do these two really technologically impressive games. We're going to do Ultima 8, the next game in this distinguished line of RPGs. We're going to use 3D Studio. We're going to have wonderful graphics and animation and all of this great stuff. Our Wing Commander guy, Chris Roberts, he's going to make a near-future flight simulator called Strike Commander that is going to have incredible graphics, incredible technology, incredible gameplay. These two games are going to boldly lead Origin and EA into the future. Well, we talked about how Ultima 8 was a disaster, and not because of EA meddling. Strike Commander was also a disaster. Basically, what has happened is Electronic Arts gave Origin a bunch of money, a bunch of resources, a bunch of talent. Origin took all of that money and created two expensive flops. Now, Jeffrey, let's not even pretend that you are a CEO of a major corporation. Let's not bring corporations into this. If you give a person $50 that promises to turn that into $50,000. Let's be nice and just say 5000 Okay, $5,000. And instead comes back to you and says, oh, by the way, not only did we not make any money, but you now owe $5,000. Sorry about that, but this next investment is going to be great. I just need another $100 from you, and this time it's going to work out. What would you say to that person, Jeffrey? Not as a corporation, not as a game designer, just as a human being. I don't think that's going to happen, kids. That's right. When Richard's like, EA just completely changed the marching orders, they decided that we shouldn't make big games anymore and we should just make a bunch of small games. Well, no. What they actually were saying is, Richard, we gave you a bunch of money and you blew it. Focus on making smaller scale games because we think that may be something more manageable for you. That's completely different because it's a lie. I'm sure that they really told Richard focus on smaller games, but it's a lie to say that they forced Origin to make smaller games. Because the Wing Commander series, which was still successful, they made Wing Commander 4, which cost $12 million. And that came out around the same time. Right. In the same time period that they're saying to Richard Garriott make smaller games, they're spending lavishly on Wing Commander. Wing Commander 4 comes out in 1996, just to put a definite date on it. There's no account anywhere that says that EA was unhappy that Chris Roberts was spending lots of money. In fact, their marketing of the game even emphasized how they spent a lot of money on it to build real sets, to make the movies look even better. Their marketing campaign around it was, isn't it great we spent all of this money making this game? So clearly, they didn't tell Origin it's now a company-wide mandate that you only make small games. Because they were making Wing Commander 4 right in this time period. Clearly, what they really said was, Richard, maybe you should think smaller. That can make sense. I mean, he put out the game that really was a flop in 94. Mm -hmm. 
Wing Commander comes out in 96, two years later. Massive hit. That's from Origin. Really good. They got good money coming in here. Ultima 9, when it's actually released, is 99. 1999. Yes, and he started working on it in 1994, right after Ultima 8 was done. Five-year development? That's nuts. But here's what happened. Because Ultima 8 was such a disaster, EA had lost some confidence in the Ultima series, and this was not unjustified. Ultima 8 truly was a disaster. There was a team beginning to do Ultima, but at the same time there were other projects going on. Crusader No Remorse was starting up, which became a minor hit for Origin in 1995. You also have the Wing Commander stuff continuing on, obviously. And then you have the Ultima Online pitch. Ultima 9 ends up being manned by a skeleton crew while other projects take center stage. Because at this point, Ultima 9 is using a modified version of the Ultima 8 engine. It's not a brand new engine at this point. It just doesn't look like there's anything left in the tank. So they're kind of like, yeah, you can work on it, you can play around with it, but we need to get some games out now that are going to work. I think it's fair to say that EA did lose confidence in Ultima, that they were less interested in letting Richard do what he wanted, but it wasn't because they suddenly had some crazy edict of big games are out, small games are in. It's that Richard threw away a lot of their money. They just wanted to dial everything back and maybe get a grasp on things a little bit. I think that's reasonable. I mean, I don't always defend corporate decision-making, but you've heard us rip apart Atari before. In this case, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Ultima 9 development kind of continues along with just a skeleton crew while people are put first on Crusader and then on Ultima Online. It may have been that it would be canceled entirely. Who knows? It it really may have been. But it was saved by the tinkering of one of the few people that was left kind of sort of working on it. Basically, we were at another major inflection point in computer game history, where we were just moving from software-rendered 3D to graphics, uh, 3D graphics accelerator, hardware-driven 3D. Ultima 9 started out in development from a technological standpoint as taking the Ultima 8 slash Crusader No Remorse engine, which was a modified and extended version of the Ultima 8 engine, starting to move to full 3D rendering. Still, I think at this point within an isometric world, I know that Ultima 9 is released was not an isometric world, but really upping the 3D elements even more in this isometric world because they felt they had to do something technologically that was better than 8. And obviously they knew they'd be able to use a CD-ROM this time around. They would not be constrained by floppy. So the skeleton team is working on this. They're doing animations. They're doing graphics. They come up with a new conversation system to allow the interaction with NPCs. They even do some recording sessions with voice actors. I mean, work is getting done. But the problem is that by doing this 3D stuff, which at this time has to be software rendered, the game runs horribly, absolutely horribly. This is the other part of the losing faith in Ultimate, losing faith in Richard's story. 
it's not that they were suddenly just a dog chasing its own tail like, okay, let's have Ultima 9. No, 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 wait, let's have Ultima online. No, 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 okay, fine, we'll do Ultima 9 again. It wasn't just that. It's that the Ultima 9 that was being worked on at this time was really bad. It did not look like it was going to be a viable game technologically. They were too ambitious, especially for 94. Right. So then in 1996, this guy Miller is hired. He tries to start bringing it more in line, and they kind of have a script in place that's similar to the final plot, but is not quite the final plot. They're trying to work on improving performance and streamlining the technology, but it's not going well. Finally, Mike Mashaffrey, who we talked about was the lead of the project on Ultima 8 and is also a programmer on Ultima 9, he starts fiddling around in his spare time and ends up getting the game to run using the Voodoo graphics card and the 3DFX API Glide. Our younger listeners may not be aware of Voodoo, but when 3D graphics acceleration first really got going in the mid-90s, 3DFX was the company in 3D hardware acceleration. Voodoo, their Voodoo cards were the gold standard in 3D graphics acceleration. That was the card to have was a Voodoo card. I remember back in the day going out to the store, spending... I think 200 bucks to buy one. Yep. However, they were not good people like everybody else and just did OpenGL, which is still what's used today. They had their own proprietary API, 3DFX Glide, which meant that you had to make your game specifically run with a Voodoo card, and if you only made your games run with a Voodoo card it would not be compatible with other cards. It's not like today when everyone uses the OpenGL standard. The OpenGL standard did exist back then, but Voodoo 3DFX declined to be a part of that. That was fine when they were the market leader. It got them in trouble when they had actual competition. But the point is, McShaffrey started tinkering with it on weekends, and there's some disagreement on whether he fully implemented this himself during his tinkering or if his tinkering just became the base of what was later done officially in-house at the company. They got Ultima 9 converted to Glide to run on a Voodoo card. That suddenly made it seem viable again, and it suddenly made it seem technologically interesting again, and it suddenly made it seem like something worth pursuing again. When Richard tells the story, he talks about EA like a company that just can't decide what's going to do. Ultima 9, no Ultima Online, no Ultima 9. But really what it was is Ultima 9 was a disaster. Ultima Online, once EA realized that there was something there, I mean, they did originally reject the pitch, but came around to it later. There was some other MMO that came out around the same time, and they were like, ooh, I can see what's there. Yeah, Meridian 59. Ultima 9 looks like it's going to be a slow, buggy mess. Ultima Online looks cool, so they're like, let's take resources away from Ultima 9. Then Ultima 9 gets converted to run on Glide. It's a completely different situation now. So then they look at that and are like, okay, now you've done something interesting. 3D graphics cards are the wave of the future. If we can make this a game that is going to showcase 3D graphics cards and show that we are at the forefront of this emerging new technology, now Ultima 9 is exciting again. Let's put resources back on it. 
there's a logical reasons why they moved back and forth. It wasn't just this, no that, no this, no wait, I can't decide, oh my god. There was actual work done that made Ultima 9 seem more appealing. So this is 1996. We're two years in development, but we're still three years from release. What'd they do with the other three years? (laughs) Well, they kept having problems because there was one very unfortunate side effect of all of this back and forth and putting people on the game, taking them off, putting them on other games, putting other people on, taking them off, bringing old people back. There was a lot of starting and stopping on Ultima 9. Unfortunately, because of all that stopping and starting, there was not a very good understanding of what the code base of the game was. There was code being written on top of code being written on top of code. They started with this converted Crusader engine, so they're already starting by hacking an engine on top of a hacked engine on top of the original Ultima 8 engine. Now we're talking about putting 3D graphics acceleration and compatibility with the Glide API on top of that. You had people contributing code, then going to another project, sometimes leaving the company entirely, so nobody really knows what they did. The game is this Frankenstein's monster that is entirely impossible to wrangle. I'll give you one example that's in the book Through the Moongate about this period in Origins history. At one point, they noticed that Ultima 9 was just running really, really deathly slow, and there didn't seem to be anything they could do to get it to run any faster. Then what they discovered when they dug into the code was that there was a second combat system running underneath everything else. That's what was slowing down the game. A second combat system? Yes, because sometime in the past, one of these people that was no longer on the project had built in a combat system, and then somewhere along the line, who knows how, that combat system got paved over. People didn't realize it was there, and so the new combat system was built, but they didn't realize that they hadn't actually disconnected the old combat system from running. So the game was literally trying to run two different combat systems at the same time during combat. That's why it was going so slowly that it wouldn't work right. Sounds to me more like they just need to scrap the whole thing and redo from start. They did need to scrap the whole thing and redo from start. The problem was, at this point, it entered into the sunk cost fallacy. At this point, the game had been in development for so long, and EA just wanted to be done with it. EA was ready to cancel it. I mean, EA was just going to stop. It's like, okay, this is a disaster. Let's just not do this anymore. But Richard's still at the company, and Richard still has influence at the company. There were two general managers at Origin in this period. Right around this time after EA bought Westwood Studios, they brought in Neil Young from Westwood to be the new general manager of Origin. He has been interviewed. He was later replaced by Jack Highstand, who had been in a lot of different positions at Electronic Arts. I have interviewed Jack Highstand. Neil Young, in the interview that he gave, basically said that there wasn't a lot that he could do to control what was going on at Origin. Another thing that people accuse looking in on it is, you know, they brought in all of these new people from Westwood Studios and they didn't care about Origin and its culture, so they just micromanaged things to death and, you know, and that's why Ultima 9 became a mess. But the indication is that 
Neil Young was pretty hands-off, at least according to him. And I asked Jack about his experience because he came in afterwards. And it's like, you know, Neil's given this interview where he said that he really couldn't get anyone at Origin to do what he wanted. Was that your experience as well? And Jack said, no, no, that definitely was not my experience. And then he hypothesized that what it was is when you have someone like Richard who has built up such clout, who is an original founder, you know, before the acquisition and, and such clout in the industry, you can't necessarily exert as much control over someone like that as you can over more regular employees. So Richard, despite all the problems that he'd had, still had a ton of influence. He basically stuck his neck out and put his personal reputation on the line to say, no, we need to finish Ultima 9. This is my baby. This is the end of my trilogy of trilogies. We are going to get this done. EA agreed not to cancel the project, but they really did want to be done with it. So they weren't going to invest in a complete redo from start. It's kind of a sunk cost fallacy situation where we've put so much money into this. Let's just see it through as it is and not start over because we've put too much effort into this version already. They brought in a new guy from Westwood named Del Castillo. They had him take over the project, and he requested a redo from start. He wanted to do a native 3D graphics engine that was unique to Ultima 9, not kludged together from previous engines, and start all over again. He was told no. Conspiracy theorists within and without the company think that this was a deliberate ploy to get rid of Richard. That they figured, okay, if Richard's going to stick his neck out on this, then we'll support him as little as possible. And if he gets the game out and it's a failure, we can get rid of him and it will be a failure because it's in such bad shape. But if he doesn't get the game out at all, since he stuck his neck out, we can also get rid of him. I don't think that that's probably the case. It could be. People can be vicious, and EA is a large company with a lot of politics. So I'm not saying that's impossible. It may be true. But if you look at it from a bottom line perspective, I think they were just done with it. They didn't want to get rid of Richard outright. So if, if Richard, like, I need to finish this game, I want to finish this game, they're like, fine, but we're sick of spending money on it. Maybe it is more nefarious, I don't know. But those are the two possibilities. Whatever the reason, they denied Del Castillo's request to start over from scratch and made him continue to use this broken, kludgy, hacked-together, poorly-documented Frankenstein of an engine to finish the game. What is this game that we're talking about, this Ultima 9 Ascension? Well, in the beginning, it was meant to be the complete destruction of everything. Richard Garriott actually wanted this to end with the destruction of Britannia. Destroy Britannia. Just like you did in every Ultima game where you decided to cast the Armageddon spell and <laughs> just made the game unplayable past that point. But it was fun during the time. Right. His plan was, you know, this is the final trilogy, the final game in the final trilogy of my trilogy of trilogies. Presumably, we're going to defeat the bad guy. But as a consequence of all of this, we are really going to destroy Britannia. People were like, no, just no, Richard. I think he was ready to be done with Britannia. He was not ready to be done with Ultima. But, you know, he gave an interview early in the Ultima 9 development process where he basically said, yes, Ultima 9 is concluding the Avatar's story. It's concluding Britannia's story, and when we do an Ultima 10, if we even call it Ultima 10, 
it's going to be completely new. I mean, I think he was ready to lay this to rest, and I think he just saw the most expedient way of making sure that they were truly, truly done with Britannia was to blow it up. But everyone said, no, that's way too much of a downer. We cannot do that. Instead, they came up with this idea of, okay, well, we can't get rid of Britannia because that's way too much of a downer, but we can at least get rid of the Avatar, (laughs) right? We can save Britannia, but we can have it saved through a noble sacrifice of the Avatar, thus creating a similar situation and a similar kind of finality to the whole thing. The first draft of the script was written by an individual named Bob White. I mean, he was in charge of the story at the start. He just doesn't end up staying with the project all the way through. Bob White's original idea for the game was that in the absence of the Avatar, while the Avatar was on Pagan, the Guardian created several towers in Britannia and caused plague and pestilence upon the entire land. The cities of Britannia banded together to fight off the worst effects of this assault, but at the height of the crisis, Lord British falls ill, and a ruling tribunal is put in place that is then corrupted by the Guardian, so that it turns on itself and creates a tense situation, everyone's falling back to their own lands, and it looks like there will be a civil war. Britannia is falling apart now, but it turns out this is all a distraction, because while everyone is infighting, the Guardian is actually gathering power through these towers he's raised, and then he's going to use this energy to destroy the world. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Doable plot. Intrigue. Has some allusion to the previous games. I'm down. Then, at the end, it would be discovered that when you killed the Guardian, he would just come back anyway through energy release from the columns, and the only way to make this all go away forever was to use the Armageddon spell, as you previously alluded to, and that's what would destroy Britannia. So as I said, that was decided to be too dark. So when Del Castillo took over the project, they changed some of those elements. And as I indicated, they're like, okay, we can't really blow up Britannia, but maybe we can create a similar effect by essentially blowing up the Avatar. You asked way back near the start of the episode, did we know what the Guardian was in Ultima 7? And it's like, we didn't even know what it was until like five years into the development of Ultima 9. Castillo changed the plot subtly. The corrupted Towers of Virtue became the Towers of Vice instead, and so rather than being existing Towers of Virtue that were corrupted, they were new towers that were raised and created by the Guardian. Incidentally, we are dealing with eight pillars that happen to correspond with eight dungeons. (laughs) Imagine that. These towers, once again are going to destroy the world. That's the same as in the original plot. Instead of being these towers raised by the Guardian, they are the towers of virtue that have been transformed into the towers of vice. So you need to purify these towers by, as you said, entering the eight dungeons, therefore negating the danger. Then, in this version, you learn what became the canon ending, which is that the Guardian and the Avatar are two sides of the soul of the Stranger, the character from the first three games, which is torn into two parts whenever he enters Britannia, and that you have to sacrifice yourself and reunify with the Guardian to purify everything and save the world. 
So, yeah, that happened around maybe 1997 or so, 96, 97, I'm not sure exactly. But, yeah, they started development on this years before that. It's just, it's a mess. Then they take a trailer to, like, E3. It's not well-received. Del Castillo kind of tussles with the audience online a little bit, with the fans, about how Ultima's not just about baking bread. Got the fan base kind of riled, and it's all very frustrating. And then Del Castillo ends up leaving the project as a result of all of that. Richard basically steps back in and once again puts his neck on the line to just get this darn thing out and finished. Ultima 9 gets released in 1999. Yay! It is buggy to the point of unplayable, literally unplayable, game-breaking bugs. You have some experience with this, Jeffrey. Well, you start the game, and then it crashed. So I started the game again. It crashed, too. The third time I started the game, it blue-screened and then crashed. (laughs) The fourth time I was able to start the game, I was able to finally get into the Avatar's bedroom, where everyone really wanted me to be. Yeah, I mean, there were crashes everywhere. There were game-breaking bugs. One of my favorite one of those was I went to purify the Shrine of Compassion. Enter the mantra of compassion. Okay, type it in. Hello, game, do something. Why are you not doing anything? Did I type it in wrong? Click, click, click. Nope. Game. Reload game. Go back in there. Type in mantra again. Oh, there's a little cinematic and everything. Okay, fine, great. Why didn't you do that in the first place? They patched it. It was still broken. It's not just, you know, games are hard and games are long and games are more complicated to make. It was this Frankenstein's monster of code. At this point, nobody knew how the game worked anymore. You can't fix something if you don't even know how it's broken. Why am I able to walk around on a gargoyle's web and then stab the queen and then suddenly I'm teleported to a dungeon and what the heck just happened? (laughs) Ultimate 9 just happened. Oh, good. Let's go to the dungeon of Britannia Castle and mock that person down there who is just going, I'm Lord British, I'm the king, who has a striking resemblance to Richard Carriott. He put himself in jail, apparently. Right. Unfortunately, that ended up being the end of Ultima. There was an Ultima Ten in development. It's going to be called Ultima Ten Odyssey. Richard Garrett had left the company by this point. Andy Hollis, a veteran of flight simulators, had been, co- had been brought in to kind of lead development at the studio. The Origin studio in general was just troubled at this point. A lack of direction, a lack of understanding on how to move the online part forward. EA in this period was seriously messing up their entry into online. One thing that EA definitely butchered was their entire dot-com foray in the late 90s, and Origin kind of got caught in the middle of that. The studio was a mess at this point. They just decided that they needed to shut the studio down. There had been a lot of progress made on Ultima 10. We don't know a lot about it. We don't know what state it was in. We don't know if it was any good. Basically, they just decided this studio needs to be put to bed now. Any projects are going to be canceled. I mean, obviously, Ultima Online, because it was an active game, and had subscribers and was popular, was moved to a new studio to keep maintaining it, but they just shut the studio down and they weren't going to transfer any projects from Origin anywhere else. 
the end of the studio meant the end of Ultima 10, meant the end of the Ultima series. It's kind of sad, you know, this episode's one of our longer episodes, and it's been kind of a roller coaster because we started with one of the great highs, not just in Ultima history, but in computer RPG history in general, a game that still resonates today and whose influence you can still see today in games like Skyrim. Then we have to follow that all the way down to Ultima 9, which is just this buggy Frankenstein's mess that just kind of shambles along like a half-eaten corpse for years and years until EA finally just kind of shoves it out into the world and it dies a painful death. It's sad. It's crazy. However, if you can get the game to run, to be fair, within the confines of itself, they do get a lot of content and story in there. Sort of like how each Ultima, in a way, sort of touches on the ones that happened before and after it, but the actual plot threads don't really flow through exactly. Well, one through three, four, five, six, and the same is, can be said for seven, eight, nine, because the way I sort of view the transition between seven and eight is I include those two expansion packs in there, or three expansion packs in there, that create more of a story that go into more of what goes on with after those who were trying to summon the Guardian went off to the Serpent Isles and you realize, oh, wait, there's another kingdoms out here. All those kingdoms that Lord British sort of annexed or drove off, all those people who didn't want mm-hmm. to become part of Britannia. You know, when you had Sestaria, which had a whole bunch of kings everywhere. Right. Where did they all go? Well, apparently they ran off to Serpent Isle and associated areas. And then you learn, oh, there's this old older religion before the virtues thing. And you learn there's the chaos serpents and all that. And then it's when, and at the end of that, is that's when the Guardians supposedly grabs you and throws you off to Pagan. The thing that was interesting there is like they make a few allusions to older games where there's a note somewhere that says that Lord Blackthorn actually came to Serpent's Isle and did a bunch of penance to redeem himself because of how bad he was. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lore and interesting things. And you, of course you have to massage all of this. They make some allusion to that in Ultima 9 and all the things there because Lord Blackthorn's suddenly back and he's evil again. But <laughs> right. Even after he redeems himself. 9 is very much written by people who, okay, I know there's some characters here, but I never probably played all the games to fruition. So I'm just going to take my plot and run with it. Unto itself is kind of interesting, and I did like the concept of the Guardian being the shattered other half of the Stranger's soul as the evil side from the first three games. I really liked and resonated with that, especially if you try to retcon that back into the other game, because, I mean, heck, this is Ultima, <laughs> this is fun. Retconning plot and uh, things, it's just fun just doing that for the previous games. We do harp on the negative things here a lot of the badness of the game the engine the development and stuff i think just like in ultima 4 this is not about the destination of where we went to about what we ended up with with ultima 9 of yeah the thing's done we're over origin's dead it's the journey it is the journey of someone who goes i'm a small kid i'm exploring this world all of this stuff just sort of amalgamizes in your head. The story of the Avatar, the story of Britannia, is what you make of it and what you 
like about all of these varying stories that have gone on throughout all nine of these games. It's brought together in the end. It's sort of like, yeah, things ended, the Avatar is destroyed, but you're in a better place as a result of experiencing that. I don't think that the negative aspects of crashes, bugs, and everything should detract from the experience. Sure. I mean, that's a fair take. I mean, obviously, because of all the bugs and all of that stuff, I mean, it it wasn't a, a great seller. Ultima 4 is beloved despite its quirks, whereas Ultima 9 is not necessarily completely beloved despite its flaws. However, I do agree that it concludes the story, and they did get a story in there. It wasn't as rushed and incoherent a mess as Pagan was from that perspective. I think it's good that they got to conclude the story of the Avatar. How many series of video games that, you know, are numbered into the 7s, 8s, 9s, 10s, 20s ever truly try to finish and tell a complete story? I think we're better off that Ultima 9 came out and that Ultima 8 was not everyone's last taste of Ultima. (laughs) That would have been a really sour pill to swallow. Exactly, because at least they did get to finish a story. At least they got to end the journey of the Avatar. I'm sure you're right that there are people, um, yourself I assume included, that look back and remember the journey fondly and how it helped shape their worldview more than whether Ultima 9 crashed the first three times they loaded it up. I think it's appropriate to end on a little bit of a positive note and say that at least this grand epic series of trilogies did come to a close. At the very least, if you have any interest in any of this and you haven't played all the games, watch a few Let's Plays of all the games, even Ultima 9. There's some really good ones out there. You explore, you learn. Yeah, there's crashes. Yeah, there's bugs. Yeah, there's issues. But it's always the journey, and that's always been what Ultima's been about since the very beginning of Akalabeth. It's about the journey, not where you start, not where you end. Absolutely. All right, Alex, there's one last thing before we sign off. That is our next episode, which is a little bit special because it comes out on September 1st, which, for those who may not know, is this podcast anniversary date. This will mark the sixth year we've been doing this. Wow, six years. (laughs) Hard to believe that, uh, that we've kept this going without fail twice a month every month for six years it's been harrowing a few times let me tell you but to really start that entire transition kick off a new i don't know season year of editing frantically (laughs) let's do a bit of a revisionist history here let's look back at they create worlds and everything there let's look at your book and all of the errors that are in it, and I know you have a lot. Uh, I mean, there are a few. <laughs> Mostly small things, I'm happy to say. I mean, no work is without any error of any kind. My book is far more accurate than most of the sources out there today, but that doesn't mean it's without its flaws. So we do want to look at some of the things that I've learned since writing it. You don't have to have read the book to be able to follow along. It's not like we're going to go through and say, okay, and if you turn to page 35, you'll see that, uh, you know, we're just going to take some topics in video game history that we've just learned more about. We did this a couple of times with the podcast early on where we did revisions and update episodes. We haven't done one of those in a long time, not so much because there haven't been errors since because they still occasionally creep in or new discoveries because I'm making those all the time. 
but because we have so many episodes now, it's quite frankly hard to keep straight what we covered when <laughs> anymore. In fact, even planning this, he had me go search through the show notes. Did we talk about this? Did we talk about that? <laughs> right. We might pick up on a couple of things from later podcast episodes as well, though I think we'll mostly focus on things from the book. And yeah, it's just a nice way to look back on our anniversary. So that just seems like a nice way to cap the sixth anniversary of the podcast. All right, so no more funny outros with Guardians or anything. Apparently we scared them off for the EA, and I had a completely different plan to get rid of him. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 